every every data project or conversion rate optimization project should really start with some some really clear business goals, right? It's very often yeah. that we're still stuck in the weeds that we that we start focusing on the problem we've been thinking about for years without taking a step back and saying, right, what's the business trying to achieve here? And how how can our work support that? Um, and I think that's something we try and we train all our analysts to start with at the beginning of every project, because if you don't do it, it's very easy to do good work that's not valuable. Hello, and welcome to another exciting conversation on the VWO podcast. In this episode, Stuart Scott from Mammoth Growth shares practical strategies and ideas to run better A-B tests. Stuart also explains how you can prioritize testing according to your unique business goals. But wait, this episode isn't like your regular podcast. It's a unique webinar turned video podcast and it is delivered to you in the form of an exclusive masterclass. So don't forget to hit that follow button to stay updated with our latest episodes. With that being said, let's join Stuart and learn how to stop wasting time and money on bad A-B tests. I'm going to start with this this slightly kind of provocative slide, right? So 85% of, of A-B tests fail. And I think it's, wide, it's widely kind of accepted that most A-B tests will fail. And actually, if, if if they all win, then we're not learning anything, are we? And like, there's no point running a test, right? We should just have, have shipped, the, shipped the change. Um, but it also means there's a huge opportunity, right? So if we can, if we can increase the number of successful tests from 15% to 20 or 25 or even 30%, um, we can start to move much faster and, in, and improve our, our businesses and, and our revenue much more quickly. Um, so, so I guess, why does it matter? The, the reason it really matters is that the EB tests are expensive and it, take, it takes a lot of energy from, from your team as an organization to, to build the variants, to set up the experiment, to debug it, to, to do some quality assurance. Um, and then also, whilst they're test live, it creates additional work for the organization. So you've got to maintain, maintain multiple versions of the website. Um, you've got to keep your customer support team up to date. You've got to make sure that if someone reaches out to you, you know which version they're running. Um, and now all of this is, is more than worth it, where you're really learning something important that moves your business forward. Um, but we need to make sure that we are, we're only, or that, that the tests we are running are, are delivering that for our business and that they're not kind of wasting time. And so how do we, how do we improve our success rate and, and reduce the amount of time we waste? Well, the answer is data, right? So we, we as, as modern businesses collect huge amounts of data every day. Um, and lots of that data can tell us something about what might or might not work when we make a change. Um, and so, so what I'm really advocating for here today is, is using the data that in most cases you already have to make sure that you are you are maximizing your chances of success every time you, you launch an A-B test. And if you can only launch a certain number each month, that you're using those as effectively as possible. And so I'm going to start with, a, with an example here. And so, so we were working with a company who are an e-commerce business and, and are using, um, have a, have a sign-up flow when, when someone registers, um, where they ask you to, to sign up with an email address or with Facebook login. Um, and they, the other thing that's important to know about this business is that they are really reliant on, on email as a, as a marketing channel. So most, they have a very high repeat rate and most of that repeat rate is driven by, or it involves emailing the customer with promotions or with, uh, with updates about the business, something, some new product launches. 
And so um, that kind of email channel is is one of the most one of the most important ways in which they drive revenue. And so what they were seeing is that the Facebook sign-in option they offered was really popular. And so they had a hypothesis for an A-B test, right? If we, if we add more sign-up options, so we add things like um, Google sign-in or Twitter sign-in or other social sign-ins, then we'll be able to increase conversion rates because we'll have made it easier to register for the products um, and we'll have, I guess, reduced the bar removed a barrier, right? And so, so they had a plan to, to A-B test adding more sign-in options, which is a, a great idea. But the one thing I think we always advocate for is before you start a test is that you really look at the data and understand what the potential of that test is. And so we did some, some pre-test analysis with them and we found a, a really surprising result, right? That users who sign up with Facebook place less orders over their lifetime and are less valuable than the users who sign up with an email address. And, and that was a, a really surprising result for everyone, right? Because, because we thought we'd made, or, or the business thought they'd made life easier for people by letting them sign up with Facebook and that those users would be, would be really engaged. Um, and so we did some follow-up analysis and we found actually the big difference was the email open rates were much lower for the Facebook users than they were for, for users who signed up with an email address. And so, um, I mean, we kind of, at this point we're, we're guessing a little bit, but, but if I think about my own kind of personal Facebook account, I haven't, my, my Facebook account is still associated with an email address from when I set that Facebook account up. Um, probably 15 or 20 years ago. Um, I don't, are Facebook 20 years old? Anyway, um, but I, when I set up in the early days of Facebook, and so I, I don't even look at that email account anymore. And, and I think what we were seeing is that lots of other users are in the same place, right? They still sign into Facebook regularly, um, but they're no longer using, no longer using those email addresses that are associated with their Facebook account. And so actually, this led us to a completely different plan, right? So still an A-B test, but instead of A-B testing, adding more social signing options, what we actually did was A-B tested hiding the Facebook signing option. Now, like two things about the test, right? One is given the data we had, it was much more likely to be successful. The second of all, it was a much easier test to run because it's much easier to hide a button than to build integrations with, with different third parties and, and also maintain those integrations, right? Because if someone signed up with Google, I couldn't delete the, the Google integration the next day. I had to wait and, and allow them to continue signing in that way until I could somehow migrate them to a different option. Uh, and so we ended up with what was actually both a much easier test to run and, and one that had a much higher chance of success. And actually the results were really positive. So whilst we, whilst we did see a very small drop in, in conversion rate, we actually saw a big uplift in repeat orders. Um, and that was kind of more than worth it and, and really outweighs the, the impact on conversion rate. Um, and so I think what we learned here is that our intuition isn't always right, right? We, um, we all have opinions about the, the products or the websites that we work on and opinions about what does and doesn't work, what we should change, what we shouldn't change. And that, that intuition isn't always right. And that's why... And, and I guess going back to the, the first slide, that's why so many A-B tests are unsuccessful, right? Because often, we are, often we're guessing and we're making assumptions about what will and won't work. 
Um, and that's the reason we are A-B testing, right? Because we need to, we need to, I guess, test those assumptions. But often there's a much faster way to test those assumptions than running an A-B test. Um, so A-B tests are great when we need to learn something new and we need to develop a new data point or we need to prove something with a really high degree of certainty. But actually, often we already have some data that can give us great insight and allow us to, to ensure that we're testing things that are really going to move us forward. Um, and I think that's what this is an example of, right? It, it wasn't that it, an A-B test was still the right answer, but, it was, but we had the wrong one to start with. Um, and so... Yeah, by using data, we can get that faster. And so that brings me to the next slide. How, how can we learn faster? And so if I, if I think about like the simplest A-B testing process that, that you as an organization can have, right? You, essentially, it's two steps. It's a hypothesis step where you, you sit down, you do some user research, you interview some users, you watch some session recordings, look at some heat maps, do some other analysis, and you come up with some ideas how you can improve your experience, your products, and ultimately like the conversion rate and your revenue. And then you take those hypotheses and you run some experiments. So most often that's probably an A-B test. Sometimes it might be some other sort of test. Um, and you prove or disprove the hypothesis. Now, as a starting point, this is great. Um, you're learning. You're not just kind of shipping on gut instinct. You are making informed decisions. But but we can be much more efficient, right? If we start to integrate other methods of learning uh, into this process. So, so what we advocate for is adding two, two, two additional steps. So after you've, uh, after you've got your hypotheses, um, what we call the like validation and design steps. So we, basically what we did in that first, in that case study I just talked about, right? Like looking at the, data that, that we have and looking at how that data can, I guess, give us more information about the hypothesis and what the likely outcome of that test is. And then I think the other thing or another thing that's really important is it can also help us prioritize these tests. So there are, there's an infinite kind of number of, number of different tests we can run. Um, and not all of those have the same potential impact, right? So some of them are potentially more impactful than others. And so by doing some sort of sizing and an estimation of if this is successful, what can I achieve? Um, we can, we can again, make sure that we're spending our time on the most valuable tests. And then I think the third thing that you can do here that's, that's really useful is, is prototyping. So, um, have one of your designers build, build a wireframe and interactive, um, mock-up, and then actually maybe take it out to other people in the company or users and see how they interact with it. And, it, and use that to iterate on the, the design of the experiment. And then I think the other really important thing is once you've run a test, all too often, like we see companies stopping there, right? Like they take the results of the test and, and that's then done. And so, um, again, it's really important to take a pause after you've run a test and say, whether, whether the test was successful or not, what can we learn from it? Can we look at how different segments behaved? Um, can we look at other metrics beyond the one that we collected kind of the statistical significance for, um, or can we see other interesting behaviors, uh, in, in the data? So, and then to go a bit deeper on, on a few of these elements, first of all, we talk about, about the hypothesis. So it's, it's really important, um, in my opinion, in my opinion, that you're clear about the hypothesis that you are 
testing, right? So it's very easy to write down quite a vague hypothesis, hypothesis, but I'm, but the, the risk when you do that is it, it makes it too easy to have uh, an, a discussion about, or a prioritization discussion based on opinion uh, and not based on, I guess, facts and, and data. And so by forcing people to, to use a fixed format for, for documenting hypotheses, and this is one that I quite like, it's not the only one, but a good starting point. If we, if we say, what are you going to do? So if we, then I think I'll see a specific change. And then because, and, and what's the mechanism that you believe that change will happen through. And this kind of forces people to document their assumptions and it makes it, um, I guess it, it levels the playing field a bit, right? It, it means that everyone, it means that it's not just the loudest voice in the room that's going to win that discussion. It means you can go away and look at data and, and kind of qualify some of these some of these um, assumptions and actually test the assumptions in other ways and then confirm that it is actually the test you want to run or the hypothesis that you want to test. And then if we then talk about kind of the second step in that, in that flow, the, the validation and design phase, the, the question here is really as much as anything, what's the most valuable test that we can run? So, so we know we're going to run a test, right? Like it's, it's almost, or it's most of the time it's going to be the outcome, but we want to make sure that that test is the most valuable, most valuable one, that we're not wasting time. We're not testing something that we can already kind of understand the answer to from our existing data. Um, and so, so really we're asking a whole range of questions here, right? But, it, but it's some of the most common ones are like, how many users actually drop off at this stage in the funnel, right? Like, are there enough dropping off that if we improve the conversion rate at this step, we'll actually see a, a big enough impact down funnel to, to be statistically significant and to actually Im improve our, improve our business overall. Um, well enough people interact with the change for it to be impactful. So, um, I've seen plenty of tests where someone changes an element on a page and actually, um, the impact isn't that significant because they've, that no one sees the element or the element isn't very kind of prominent on the page and no one actually sees the change, right? Like someone or. No one experiences the different. No one has a different experience, and so there's no change on the the business as a whole because we really do need to be changing someone's experience of the product or the site uh, in order to to really improve our conversion rate. Um, and then also, what other data do we have? So have we got similar features elsewhere in the product? Have we um, done something similar in the past? Um, do we have qualitative data from from user interviews or user testing around around this stage in the funnel? Every, every data project or conversion reoptimization project should really start with some, some really clear business goals, right? It's very often yeah. that we're still stuck in the weeds that we, that we start focusing on the problem we've been thinking about for years or that, that we, that, that's like our own pet problem that we, we feel really passionately about without taking a step back and saying, right, what's the business trying to achieve here and how, how can our work support that? Um, and I think that's something we try and we train all our analysts to start with at the beginning of every project, because if you don't do it, it's very easy to do good work. That's not valuable. Right. And so that's right. Keeping that connection to the value. Cool. Um, so yeah, I think moving on from there, I wanted to use a really, actually a really simple example here, right. And probably an overly simplistic one, um, to talk a bit about how we can validate 
how, how we can validate our hypothesis and how we might select and prioritize which of the best hypotheses to work on. Um, so, I mean, think about this, the most simple funnel you can have really. So there's a, someone visits your website, they land on the landing page. There's a big call to action button. They click on that call to action button. They land on a, a second page where there's a sign up form. They fill out the sign up form and, and sign up. And um, so if we kind of split, split this in two, there are two steps in this funnel we can improve, right? We can improve the conversion from the landing page to click on the call to action, or we can improve the conversion rate from clicking on the call to action to completing the sign up form. And so which one of these we pick or we, we think is most important to improve will really impact the type of experiment we might run, right? So at the, at the top of the funnel, we've got a few different options, right? We can, we can make it easier to click the CTA. We can make it more prominent. We can make the button bigger. We can make it a brighter color. Uh, we can increase trust. So we can um, add social proof, for example, add logos of other customers or um, some of our partners, or we can do more to convince the user. So we can clarify the value proposition. And then at the bottom of the funnel, set, there are similar, there's a similar set of things we can do, right? But just in doing them in different places. So we can make it easier by making the sign-up form shorter and by maybe we've got some really restrictive validation rules on the, on the name or the email address that we can make a bit looser. Um, we can increase trust so we can add lots of padlocks as, as lots of, uh, lots of websites do, um, and build that kind of notion that we're a very secure place to, to do, to buy from, um, or we can, we can also, and this is one that I've actually seen work successfully quite a few times, we can delay the friction. So often the, the bit of a sign-up form where you'll see the highest drop off if you, if you look at form analytics or if it's split over multiple pages is that customers will be really hesitant to put in their email address. And very often that's the first step in the, in the sign-up funnel and users aren't that invested at that stage. And so um, particularly where there's a, a longer sign-up process, actually asking for the email on the last page instead of the first page um, can mean you just feel so much more invested by the time they, they get asked for their email address um, that they're much more likely to complete it. But anyway, two very different sets of ideas. Um, and then the question, the first question is like, which category of ideas is going to be most valuable? And so I think this is where um, like analytics and data starts to become really impactful, right? So. Um, again, a really simple example, this is a screenshot from VWO Insights, I think, where you, we have a, that same funnel we just talked about um, and where we go from um, 2,800 users within the time period who have visited the landing page. Of those, 30% have gone on to click the call to action and of those, 70% have completed the sign-up form. Now. If we hadn't looked at this data, I might have thought that we should be investing all our time in the sign-up form because that's probably where we're seeing a really big drop-off. That's probably where uh, there's probably a lot of friction there. But actually looking at this example, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty happy if, if three quarters of the people who see my sign-up form and are asked for lots of quite personal information are, are completing it. And so actually in this case, we probably actually want to start at the top of the funnel and we want to start by getting more of those users who, who see the, see the website to put their trust in us and to be excited about the value proposition and to progress through to the sign up form in the first place. And so actually those top of funnel ideas are going to be where we should start. Um, and so I think the other, the, the second thing I'll say here is that the, the fastest way to do this analysis is typically in some sort of behavior analytics tools. So 
these tools are designed to give you like really rapid user-centric analysis, right? They're really focused on the user journey. Uh, the, all the data they collect is user-centric and, and event-based. And they have kind of out-of-the-box reports, which are really easy to configure. So things like funnel drop-offs, like the one we just saw, um, conversion paths. So what pages do users typically visit before they hit this page? Uh, heat maps, so you can see where on which bits of the page are people more often interacting with. And um, a lot, some of these tools that bundle like session recordings. I think BWO do that now as well, right? Um, and so, all tying all of these data points together and a really and making this data really accessible even to non-technical users, right? Um, means that you can just move much quicker, and and also that kind of the nature of this reporting is tied very closely to the types of um to the types of question that you're going to be answering with an ab test when you're trying to improve conversion rates um and and generally it's not that you can't do these things in a business intelligence environment using sql or sql like you can write you can write lots of sql queries to, to answer these same questions but typically it's much quicker to use uh, a behavior analytics tool and so like we would strongly advocate if you're investing in experimentation uh, you should invest in like rapid non-technical analytics alongside that. Next thing, and, and I'm going to use another case study here, but like, the next thing to talk about is once we've run this A-B test, so I'm not going to talk today about the, the process of testing itself because, I mean, if, you're, if you've joined this webinar, you're probably already thinking about A-B testing. You're hopefully doing some already. But, but one of the things that's often, I think, missed is, is once you've run that test, what do you... What else can you learn from from the test beyond what you saw in the beyond what you saw in the in the AB testing tool or in the primary KPI that you picked for that metric for that test? So in that in in most cases, right, it's going to be conversion rate or it's going to be some sort of revenue metric. Um, and so this is an example. Um, the screenshot's not from the same company, but uh, it's an example of an e-commerce company who again um, had a had a hypothesis, right? So it, Hypothesis was if we add infinite scroll to our product listing page, so instead of having 30 products on a page, we had the ability to scroll infinitely through the, through the product catalog because we have a huge product catalog, then we'll be able to increase our, increase our conversion rates because people will see more products and have more opportunities to, to see something they're inspired by and decide to buy. Um, and so the A-B test that we came up with, I mean, pretty obvious from the hypothesis, right, was to add infinite scroll to the product listing page. Um, and we ran that A-B test and the result that came back was actually that, and, and surprises all, right, that the people who were given infinite scroll were, were spending less and it was statistically significant that they were spending less. And so, so how could showing people more products and how could showing people more products lead them to spend less? Well, for that, I mean, again, I've, I've gone back to this great graphic, but um, we, we, used, we did some post-test analysis. So we dug into the data, we looked at, at what users were doing. And the, the thing we quickly saw is that whilst they were seeing more products, so they were, they were seeing more products on the product listing page, they were viewing less product pages. So they were clicking through to the next stage less often. Um, and that seems to be the mechanism through which they were, they were spending less money. And so then we watched some, some session recordings. And um, when we started watching session recordings, we saw that actually the people who were um, viewing the product listing page and had infinite scroll 
we're just scrolling much, much further before viewing a product page. So often when, when we watched a session recording for someone who didn't have infinite scroll, they would, they would scroll down to the bottom, they'd see their 25 or their 30 products, and then they'd bounce back up and they'd go back to something on the first page, on the first couple of rows that had interested them. They click on it, they go through and they, they'd read the product page in detail. When we gave people infinite scroll, what happened was they were just scrolling for ages. Like it was, we were hours and hours almost, right? We were, we were shocked by how many, how far they were scrolling and how much they were viewing. But it meant that once they had decided what to buy, or sorry, once they decided, once they kind of got bored of scrolling, they couldn't then find the thing that they, they wanted. So in these session recordings, we were then seeing people fly back up the page, trying to find the thing that they'd liked earlier on. And, and not able to find it because they'd, they'd scrolled too far. Um, and so actually it was a, whilst, whilst the kind of EB test itself wasn't successful, we learned a huge amount from it, right? So, so we learned a lot about how users interact with the product listing page. Um, and actually coming out of that, we were able to come up with some, some new hypotheses that were based on the data we'd gathered in that post-test analysis uh, and which would, I guess, lead the foundations for doing some more successful testing later. And um, so the first, um, the first thing we kind of, first alternative hypothesis we came up with was that too much selection can lead to indecision, right? So, so one of the reasons this might have happened is that if, if we show people five things, they feel like they've got to pick from the five things, they'll be quite decisive. If we show people 5,000 things, is then it's then very hard to make a decision because you've got too many things to compare and too many things to evaluate. And then second alternative hypothesis is that um, users who view more products spend more. So on the original version with a fixed number of products on each page, um, we were finding that users were kind of clicking quite a few product pages, viewing the product pages, looking at the products in detail versus on the infinite scroll example, they were seeing a lot of product cards and they were scrolling past a lot of them, but they weren't interacting with them. They weren't looking at the detail of the product. And so both of these things take us to, to some different like potential follow-up experiments, right? So if we think that too much selection is the problem, um, then we might even test a smaller page size. We might test only having 10 products on each page and, and kind of forcing users to click a button to move to the next 10, making making it much easier to kind of compare and contrast those products, adding, adding additional like comparative information, for example, on, on the listing page or even, yeah. And then if we think, if we believe in, or if we want to test the other hypothesis, um, we might then do more to encourage users to click on the, um, on the product cards, more to encourage them to view the full products, um, full product page, or we might even take information away from the product listing page so that they are. Um, so that if they want to know about the product, they're forced to click through. And, and so, but, but now we've got kind of some really concrete things we can test. And these things are backed by data to a much larger extent. Uh, and so we have, even though, as I say, as I said earlier, like, even though the test wasn't successful, we've learned lots from it. Um, and so, and it, the, the key with the post, with post test analysis or the analysis you do after the, after it's finished, whether it was successful or not. It's to really ask why, like, why did we see the result that we, that we saw? Um, did enough, did the right, or how many users saw and interacted with the experiment? Did, did lots of users see it, but not interact with it? Was that what we expected? Um, did behavior change one particular stage of the funnel or did it change across the entire funnel? 
and different segments of user behave differently. So did our best users love it? And our, our like brand new users who don't really know the don't really know our product yet hate it? Um, was was there a different experience between like um, enterprise customers and and small small businesses? Um, so so asking all these questions can help us really, I guess, extract the maximum value and the maximum amount of learning from that experiment we've run. Um, the thing that you hope you don't find here is, is bugs in the test. So um, far too many times I've seen um, I've seen us get to this stage and and look at the data and see that actually um, no one no one saw the change. How did no one see the change? Well, well, there was some bug, and so that's why I think it, it's incredibly important. You have a like robust quality assurance process before you launch the test, right? And um, it's it's very easy to build a test and launch it without without kind of going through it in detail and making sure it's all working exactly as it should. Um, but if you don't do that, um, you may you can waste a lot of time waiting for results to come in only to have to relaunch experiment. So please, please make sure you're doing that quality assurance up front. Um, and then I think final kind of lesson or thing I'd like you to take away from from today is is it's really worth documenting what you find. So you've invested lots of time and energy into learning something um, or learning multiple things, hopefully. And and if you don't document those things and sh those learnings and share them throughout the organization, um, then then you've wasted a lot of that energy um, and, and they may not persist over time or other people and other other parts of your organization might learn the same, might expend energy to learn the same thing. And um, so, so make sure that you've got a process within your organization to document what you did, why you did it and what you learned. Uh, and that's something I think we embed in all our projects, right? Like we, we make sure we are documenting everything. And sometimes it can seem like it, it adds work at the beginning, but it's more than worth it for the, the long-term benefit of maximizing the value of every experiment you're running. Um, so I suppose three, three real conclusions from all of this. Um, the first one is to make sure the A-B tests that you're running count. So make sure that if you're going to run a, run a test, make sure you've looked at the data you already have. Uh, make sure you're confident that you're going to learn something from it, right? It doesn't have to always win, but you have to always be learning. Um, second, and I kind of alluded to this already, but make sure you're using the data you already have uh, in validating and improving the hypothesis and the design of the test before you actually launch launch into an A-B test. Uh, and then last of all, even if an, an A-B test isn't successful, like you still need to look at the data and you still need to make sure you're learning from it because often, often those tests, for example, the infinite scroll one I just talked about, um, the the most value you get from those tests is what you learn when you look at the data, when you watch the session recordings, when you speak to some users who are on different variants and you understand actually why you saw the saw the result you did. Thank you, Stuart, for sharing these wonderful insights. And thank you, folks, for sticking with us throughout this episode. Now, it's your turn to take action. Implement these game-changing strategies and let us know what impact it had on your business. Also, share this episode with anyone who could benefit from these insights. And don't forget to check out the other fascinating conversations that we've had with industry experts. Before you go, make sure to hit that follow button so that you don't miss a single episode of VWO Podcast. That's a wrap from our side. Until next time, goodbye, take care, and always be testing.